0: Grab
4: your <laughs> Alright, hello and welcome to Monday Breakfast on this lovely cold morning uh, It's 8.55am, 3CR I'm James and I'm joined with Grace How are you doing, Grace? I'm good, James, how have you been? I'm going well, I had a nice weekend mm-hmm. um, Plenty of sport uh, but I'll save that for my sports show later in the week. <laughs> How was your weekend?
5: That was, uh, it was great. I was just uh, just working as usual and also just staying at home. Oh no, actually I didn't work last weekend. I was just staying at home the entire week, uh, the entire Saturday and Sunday because I um, got, got the days off and just enjoyed my time at home. Um, but also I just tried doing some of my uni work because I am part of uni at the moment, last semester going in. I've actually just started my first week back at my last semester of my entire um, final year, um, just last week, so uh, it went well. I actually didn't really prepare much for that week because I was just kind of bothered. (laughs) But yeah, so I hope I get back my starts on everything. As the semester, as the months go by, but yeah, my last ever
4: semester oh. for uni, and then I graduate. Power to you for studying over the weekend. That's wonderful.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's definitely a must for every uni student because that's the pretty much the only time we have, don't we?
4: Yeah, especially when you work as well. You know, when do you study? Yeah.
5: Exactly. So yeah, I've, I actually, I yeah, she didn't hit me hit me at the fact that I was completely free from work the whole weekend because I usually. Also have to work during the weekend. Mm. It's quite common. I, I'm working on a weekend this week, so I guess I have to do my studies during the weekday now. Ugh. So uh, I'll see how it goes. But yeah, I had, I had that and I had great food as well. Just chilling at mm. home as well.
4: Well, I hope it was restful enough. Um, we've got a blockbuster show today, mm-hmm. as always here on Monday Breakfast. Uh, we've got a number of conversations today from around the station over the last week that we'd like to showcase today. Uh, First, we have first-hand accounts of the terror of the Haganah militia with Palestinian writer and political analyst Jafar M. Ramini, which will be fantastic. That was with Jan Bartlett. Then we have uh, reflections on the differences between Britain and Norway with Stuart Rees, analysis of the decision to disallow the proposed nuclear waste dump in the Air Peninsula in South Australia. And we're finishing with uh, an interview with Dr. Claire Spivakovsky, on the recently released report by the Disability Royal Commission. So it's blockbuster. Um, To start with, we'll go to the first interview with uh, Jafar M. Ramini, um, done by Jan Bartlett on Tuesday home time. And I think it'll be very good. Enjoy.
0: read many accounts of, and speak with descendants of, the Nakba in 1948 in Palestine. Today, the memories of a child of five, when he and his family had to flee the terror of the Haganah militia. And that child is Palestinian writer and political analyst, Rafa M. Ramini, born in Janin, lived in London for 53 years and now in Fremantle, Western Australia. Jaffa, 75 years ago, the life of you and your family living in Janine came to a terrifying end. You were just five years old. What can you remember?
6: Thank you for asking this question, Jan. I remember it as if it were yesterday. As you said, I was only five. We woke up, to a beautiful May Day in Palestine, uh, to see uh, aircraft flying overhead and dropping leaflets upon us like confetti, Uh, not uh, to hail a wedding or a circumcision or or a gaiety. It was to tell us, die or leave. Uh, And they surrounded Jenin, the Haganah Zionist forces surrounded Jenin from east, west, and north, and left of the corridor going south to leave through it. And I remember being carried on the shoulders of my late brother, Mustafa, who was 15 years my senior, tricking through the mountains surrounding Jenin, trying to find refuge with friends and family who lived in villages surrounding Jenin. And we arrived in a village called Harraba. And on the way, I could hear the thuds of mortar shells, the zim of aircraft, the click, click, click of machine guns. We had to hide in a, into a cave. And a boy who was sitting next to me in the cave, and as it happened, he was my namesake. His name was Jafar as well. Got a bullet through his eye, went through the back of his head and miraculously this boy survived, but thousands of others didn't, and hundreds of thousands lost their homes. Israel pushed out eight hundred thousand Palestinians in Methodic ethnic cleansing and theft of land.
0: What did your family leave behind?
6: We left our home a home that was built in 1907 in Jenin uh, and all our belongings, we came out with meager belongings and obviously the key to the house. And we went and we stayed in Araba raba from May until about November, i.e. six months, living with, with friends and family. Mm-hmm. And when the Iraqi forces liberated Jenin, we came back, to find a horrifying scene, and I remember it, as I said, as if it were yesterday, our beautiful home, two-story house, stone-built, on the river in Janine, with a nice, beautiful garden. The garden was teeming with people, And, and I asked my mom, I said, Mama, who are all these people? She was an extremely kind and holy woman, and she said, Darling, Those are our gifts. They are brothers and sisters who came from the villages surrounding Haifa, Nazareth, and Jaffa because obviously the Haganah pushed them out. We went into the house and there was chaos. And that is how the Janine, the infamous Jenin refugee camp came to, to being. These people came from the 58 plus villages in the conurbation of Jenin that the Haganah forces ethnically cleansed and buried without trace. And where are they to go? So the uh, UN put uh, tents for them in the uh, railway station in Jenin just to house them because the winter was coming. And uh, when we went back to school the year after, I was six. Normally, the class will be about 30, 35, maximum 40 30 pupils. We had 90 and 100 because these kids had to be educated. And they were in rags without shoes. So the people of Jenin who were able to, we shared our clothes with them, we showed our food until the UNRWA, which is the United Nations World Refugee Agency, started to distribute food and clothing and blankets for them, and that is still history. The Jenin camp is still there, and as we all know, attacked by Israeli occupation forces periodically.
0: What did you learn about your extended family?
6: Well, my extended family were myself and my late brother and seven sisters. That's because my dad died when I was four months old. As per the, near, in the name Ramini, we hail from a village near Tul Karim, which carries the family name Ramin, thus the name Al Ramini. All my sisters at that time, all of them older than me, I was the youngest in the family, were actually working as teachers, social services guides showing the women how to look after their children, how to keep their house clean, and, and teaching in the refugee camps. One of those refugee camps near Tul Karim is being attacked. It's called Noor Shams, as I'm talking to you. We are a family of education. Uh, my sisters, all of them went into education, not only in Palestine, but in the Arabian Gulf, especially in Kuwait. One of my sisters, who's still alive, out of the seven sisters, two are still alive and living in Amman, Jordan. She owned three schools in Kuwait. And she has 6,000 Palestinian children learning in those schools.
0: Can I take you back to something written about the ethnic cleansing and of Christians, Muslims from Palestine? Premeditated, active land theft, genocide and ethnic cleansing. We must do everything to ensure the Palestinians never do come back to their home. The old will die and the young will forget. Well, you certainly didn't forget.
6: This infamous court by Ram than Mr. Ben-Gurion himself, considered to be the founding father of Israel. It, it was all pre-planned. I mean, ben and his clique at that time, Established the D plan, which the Dalit plan, which was totally about the ethnic cleansing of the of the Palestinian towns and villages by all means possible, and making sure that the Palestinians never never return. Though when they entered the the UN, that was one of the vital Resolution one nine four, that they should guarantee the return of all. Palestinians who wish to return, and compensate the others who lost property, who do not want to return. But this is the way they are, and it's all very clearly illustrated by a book called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, written by none other than Professor Elan Pepe, who is a Jewish Israeli historian born in Haifa. And when he grew up and he he went to university and he was doing his thesis at Haifa University, he discovered what they were sold was a lie and that they actually intended to have the whole land mass of Palestine, preferably without any Palestinians in it. It is a book that every interested party including Jewish people, because I know there are a lot of Jews who do not proscribe to the Zionist doctrine. They should read this book. It's called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Professor Alan Pepe wrote another book called The Ten Myths About Israel. That is required reading as well by anybody, any student of history or human rights especially if they are Jewish, to see the myths and the fabrications that the Zionist movement shoved down their throats.
0: We're all aware of the importance to Palestinians of education. Where did you go to further your education?
6: I lived Jenin in 1962. I was 19 years old. And the only gateway to us was, uh, at that time, to go to Arab countries around us who will afford us a visa to go. The, the one country that we did not need a visa to go to and work was Kuwait. And I said to my mom, I would like to go to to study in, in, in England or in the United States of America. And uh, she refused. She said, as, as I said, I, I was the youngest of the family uh, and very close to her heart. And she said, you can go to an Arab country, but not. to to the West because if you go, you will meet the Western girl and I'll lose you and you'll never come back. It proved to be prophetic because after working in Kuwait for one and a half years, I went to Saudi Arabia uh, and worked there for another four years. Uh, And then after the Six Day War, when I saw Israeli airplanes flying over Jeddah on the Red Sea to bomb Egypt. And the anti-aircraft of the Saudi Air Force, obviously manned by the British, were silent. I just decided that's not for me. I'm going to go, and I want to go to England, because that's where our troubles all started by the Balfour Declaration in 1917. And I wrote to a few colleges and universities, and I was accepted by City of London College, which is now City University, because I was a mature student. I was 26 when I arrived in, in London in May of 1969. And I discovered going to the school, because it was a special course, English, it was a sandwich course, English plus business studies, designed for people who are already in business, which I was. And I discovered how there is a total Taboo to discuss Palestine, as mm. you may know and your listeners, uh, a part of business, study this communication, and I want to talk about Palestine. And I went went all around looking for a map to say Palestine, not the British mandate of Palestine, not, not, not of those creations of Jesuit or French priests who visited the Levant in earlier times, but simply to say Palestine. And then I started to meet other Palestinians in colleges and universities. When I finished my studies, my mom said, don't come back, because obviously we were already under occupation in the West Bank. What I was saying and doing did not please either side, the Arabs or the Israelis. So I decided to stay, and I stayed. And then I met my wife, Sandra. Who was born in Australia, but she was working for the BBC in London, then Thames Television in London. She's a journalist and an author. She was interested in the Palestinian cause after a journalistic visit to Lebanon uh, in 1968. And she saw the refugee camps for the first time as an Australian girl who knew nothing about Palestine and she was shocked and it turned her life. And when she came back, she was invited by many an Arab organisation or a Palestinian do, as somebody who's in the media and sympathetic to our cause. And I met her out of all places at the birthday party of King Hassan of Morocco. Uh, and she was there as a journalist, and I was invited there as an Arab. And of course, being not married, I couldn't take a girlfriend with me. I went to Lyon, as a Muslim do. And she was there, and we met. And after that, 1970, the Black September happened. I don't know if your listeners are aware of this or familiar with it. Uh, it's when Some factions of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, hijacked three airplanes, took them to the Dawson field in Jordan, emptied all the passengers, uh, and blew them up, just to say, look, we're here, we exist, stop ignoring us. And that was our first actual international violence, if you like, act. That we the Palestinian under talk just to draw attention. And Sandra called me and said, "Would you like to come uh, and speak uh, because you speak good English and you look good and people will relate to you?" And I declined. I said I couldn't do it for the reasons I just stipulated that what I would say will not please either side. And I have a family that lived under occupation in Jenin and various parts of the West Bank. And I have family that lives in the Gulf and Saudi Arabia and have businesses, and they'll be threatened. But I recommended a dear friend who is still alive and and kicking, a Palestinian lady, Dr. Ghada al Kermi, a very well-known person. She's a medical doctor, but she devoted all her life to the Palestinian cause, and she wrote a few books. Uh, And there is a history.
0: Can I take you back to what you said a few moments ago about the Balfour Declaration? When did you first learn of what that declaration meant?
6: Well, every Palestinian since 1917 knows and lives by the effects of that disgusting letter that was written by Lord Balfour to his friend, Lord Rothschild, promising them their homeland in Palestine. And we learn about it, of course, from the family, my mother, my uncles, my neighbors. Uh, And when you go to school, you learn in school, and then it's everyday life. The effects are there. You see, even if you're not under occupation, which we were not between 1950 and 1967, you could see the kibbutz and the settlements across the line from Jenin and the activities of the settlers who have nothing to do with the land have no connection with the land and this is one of those atrocities that britain had no call to make they did not own the land they did not have deeds to the land in 1917 they were not even mandated by the united nations or the league of nations at that time to govern over palestine yet they have the audacity to promise this land, our land, to another people. And of course, every year that goes by, we discover the double standard and the treachery of the British, not to just us, the Palestinians, and many people around the world. And the declaration, which promised the land as a homeland for the Jews. I mean, I would like to emphasize the word homeland as opposed to estate. Though that's what the Zionist movement had in, in mind since Hassel wrote his book, The Stats. And there was a proviso uh, in, in that declaration, with, which reads as follows. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. I mean, the non-Jewish communities in Palestine in 1917 was 90% of the people, both Muslims and Christians. Yet, of course, the Jewish agency and the Zionist movement took it as a gift and forgot the proviso, like they did forget the proviso later on when they declared the state of Israel that they should allow the Palestinian refugees to come back. And nobody bats an eyelid. Everybody is cowed, everybody is worried, and everybody who opens her or his mouth, to mention the word Jew or Jewish, is labeled as anti-Semite, so people are frightened. All I've said so far, I quoted Jewish writers, Jewish historians, Jewish books. At uh, the risk of sounding a bit cliche, <laughs> I promise I have many, many a Jewish friend, not just an acquaintance, a Jewish friend through 53 years living in London and now three years here. One of my closest, closest friends is the Jewish Israeli-born man. And this is a myth, uh, some of the myths that Alain Papé said in his book, The Ten Myths About Israel, Uh, is that we, the Arabs and the Jews, have been at each other's throats for centuries. That's a lie. And I'm going to stick my neck out now and say that in the history of Jews who were persecuted in Western Christian countries and cultures, they had only respite and respect and lived a fulfilled life only under Islamic countries. All other countries, through history, persecuted them and kicked them out. Not us, the Palestinians. Not us, the Arabs. And yet they say, we've been at each other's throats for centuries. That is a lie. Another myth, that Palestine was paranormal. There are no people. Another myth. And that Palestine, they made the desert bloom. Rubbish. They came to a country that was developed, civilized, functioning, Agriculture, industry, airline, trains running from Haifa to Beirut and Cairo and Damascus and everywhere. And they say, we do not exist because it serves that purpose. Uh, purpose. And what I find amazing, that people are willing to believe this myth.
0: And that was the first part of a two-part interview with Palestinian writer and political analyst, Jaffa M. Ramini, part two on the program next week. Ross House has community
3: meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates, perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free
1: Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom
3: conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website, rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650 1599.
2: Ross House is a 3CR supporter. Even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn, were actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt, that around three billion animals are either killed or displaced.
1: The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change.
2: 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. You're with 3CR Breakfast on 855am, covering community and alternative current affairs as we do every morning here on 3CR. If you'd like to support the station in providing community access to the airwaves, please consider becoming a subscriber. Details are at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. And wherever you're listening, 3CR Digital, streaming at 3cr.org.au or maybe via the community radio app. It's great to have your company this morning. Stay tuned.
5: Good morning to our listeners, and we're now going to be heading to a conversation with Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, uh, interviewed by Jan Bartlett from Tuesday Home Time, talking about the stark differences between the two societies he visited, Britain and Norway, two very interesting countries. James, have you been to any of them before?
4: I've been to both. Wow. I was, I was lucky enough to do student exchange in Sweden. Oh, that's amazing. So I... When, when you're in Europe, you know, you go everywhere. Yeah. Cheap transport.
5: Yeah. I feel like when people res- visit Europe, they mm. would try to travel to many places and not just one. Uh, unfortunately, I've never been to Norway. I would love to visit there. I know my mom has visited there. So, uh, yeah, she told me a lot of beautiful stuff about the country and how it's very... Uh, chill and very beautiful. The scenery is amazing. That's the most important Unbelievable. bit. Yeah. Uh, so I've never got to be... I've never got to been there. But I have been to Britain. I've been to the UK for the first time. She just went there right before COVID. So that was in 2019. It's been four years since then. And yeah, that was also my first time going there. Uh, very interesting stuff. I've never actually got to visit like Cambridge or anything. It was just more of like the main city in London. Mm. And... Um, I went to Winchester, a small part of a small town mm. in the UK, because that was where my cousin went there for university. Uh, very, inter- very interesting town as well. It's very quiet, but also very beautiful place. Beautiful people. Mm. Uh, I love the sights I love the sights I was seeing and everything like all the old buildings that you see on TV like the, the cathedral and all everything so yeah because uh, yeah, I don't get that back in my country in Malaysia so mm. it's yeah just very beautiful place the city is amazing because uh, I love the city I just love the vibes of it yeah. so it's very nice to have that combination of like modern and also the old traditional buildings that you that always often get to see mm. so yeah cool stuff cool stuff I uh, would love to visit one day because I've one of my best friends is over there, yeah. so I hope to go there again one day. Yeah.
4: Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to swim in the Arctic Ocean. In wow. Norway. Went wow. to a little little town right up the top of it, so right at the top of the Atlas, mm-hmm. and it was a little town that specialised in fishing king crabs. Oh, enormous enormous crabs. I love crabs. So you know, <laughs> we, we had a crab soup. That's amazing. With a beautiful broth, and then we'd run between the Arctic Ocean and a sauna. Oh wow! Isn't wanting to be really cold then? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's almost freezing. Yeah, <laughs> snow everywhere, but it was beautiful. And I've had cold showers ever since. Mm. So there you go. That's Norway.
5: Well, I can can never do that. Uh, I'm a person. I'm a big person when it comes to. I'm not a big person. Sorry, uh, I get really scared when it comes to cold. Mm-hmm. To be honest. Um, because I'm my, my country's summer every day 24 it's 24 hours 365 days so obviously when it comes to the cold and hot cold and hot days I would much prefer summer so I can never take a cold shower unless it's really 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 scorching hot so yeah c- c- can't relate to that but yeah, for me hot shower it is awesome. what a way to live yeah so yeah let's take a listen to Jane Bar- Jane Bartlett
0: The South Australia government says that the Commonwealth needs to go back to the drawing board with plans for a nuclear waste dump and put all options on the table. This is in the context of a decision. I hadn't heard from retired academic, author and human rights activist for a while, also the founder of the Sydney Peace Foundation, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees but recently found out why he's been travelling between Norway and Britain and why these two countries. He's formerly from England and his wife from Norway. Good morning, Stuart, and welcome home. You've written that there is total contrast between Norway and Britain. What is it about Norway that impresses you?
7: I think it's a, it's, it's a country that believes that high taxation equals civilization. In other words, if you don't invest in public services, education, health, welfare, and so on, then you have a selfish society which is only concerned with every person for themselves. So the Norwegians, as with their massive universal fund available for uh, an investment for every citizen, know how to commit to... A public good, and you know that's the language. And it's right. And, and when you wander the streets of the towns of Norway, you don't see poverty. You don't see any homelessness, and you see very little disability on the streets. In total contrast to to Britain, I think there's also a kind of beautiful balance in Norway between the people and their precious environment. It's inseparable. Their health, their health and welfare and optimism is inseparable from the fjords and the mountains and the rivers and the waterfalls and, indeed, the tunnels. You know. <laughs> there's enough tunnels in Norway for everybody to have one.
0: Did you travel widely while you were there?
7: No, not this time. Uh, I mean, I have driven from the south of Norway to the Arctic Circle before, so I have a reasonable... Reasonable, I picture of um, what that dramatically beautiful country uh, looks like, and um, the service is first rate. There's a sense of what a a sense of coherence, a sense of not nationalism at all. Because what's impressive about Norway is that in peace negotiations around the world, the Norwegians punch miles above their weight they regard the responsibility to promote peace as an essential feature of their foreign policies. We're more concerned about buying nuclear submarines.
0: Yeah. A a great deal of your your work life was to do with education. What do you find out about the education system there, and particularly the university system?
7: Well, it's I mean, it's universal for a start. I remember when my wife first came to, to Britain, she, she couldn't get the, over the idea that there was, there was such a thing as private schools. Why would education be private? She wanted to know. Why would water be privatized? So there's a sort of healthy skepticism in, in Norway about privatization. And I think that shows in the, in the commitment to public school teaching. I mean, school teachers are well paid they're regarded as people of significant uh, status. Again, a bit a bit like Finland, uh, but again in somewhat contrast to Australia and and um, and Britain. And the health system? It's universal health insurance, uh, as 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 we have here. I mean, the the saving grace of Australia is is Medicare, in my judgment, in terms of a civilisation. So the Norwegians also believe that nobody should be financially penalised for being sick. You're not meant to be trying to make money in the marketplace by with, with health services. Of course, there are private services you can pay for extras, but by and large, the the standard in the public system is is second to none.
0: Well, there are all the positives, but I have read that there are a few negatives. Um... Discrimination against Roma and migrant groups remains a problem. And well, that's,
7: that's true. That's true. Look, when I first went to Norway, everybody seemed to have blue eyes and blonde hair. And now it's much more cosmopolitan. And um, the Norwegians have a policy of dispersal, uh, dispersal dispersal of the new arrivals. You can't just all live in, in um, Oslo or Bergen. You know they I mean, I once met groups of Somalis up near Tromsø, which is in the Arctic Circle. So yeah, look, of course there's discrimination. I don't think it's, I don't think it's as bad as it is next door in Sweden. But um, I look, it's not. I sometimes say Norway is as is about as utopian as you can get, and there's lots of things that. Um, Need to be addressed, but by and large, they behave like international citizens. That's what I like about it.
0: Do you believe that climate change has touched Norway?
7: Oh yes. Oh yeah. They know. They know that because the um, the cold the cold winters, which were always a feature of life there, no longer exist, and um, the longer hot summers and the And the Gulf Stream being a couple of degrees hotter than it was, because the Gulf Stream flows right up the Oslo Fjord, those are all signs of um, climate change.
0: And this must affect the wildlife?
7: Yeah, I'm not a great authority on that. I mean, I've I've looked at the Sami up in the, the herds of Sami, who there's a clash there between the, the, the Sámi's herds of um, of deer, of reindeer, that clashes with the interest in development. You've got the usual clash between the protection of indigenous people's lifestyle and the desire to drill for oil. That, uh, the, 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 the tug of war between trade or human rights exists in Norway as, as in any country.
0: And how are the indigenous people getting on?
7: Well, look, they've got they have self government. I've been to their parliament. There's a lot needs to be done. I'm not sure. I can't recall a, um, figures about the gap between the the life expectancy of the indigenous people of the north and of the people who live in the south, the Norwegians who live in the south. But the fact that there's a the self governing parliament. Is impressive. I mean, in other words, they've had the equivalent of the voice for for 30 or 40 years.
0: Well, let's tackle Britain in 2023. What did you find?
7: Oh, dear. Well, the tears are slightly rolling down my face. Well, there's a complete contrast, almost a mismatch between the stunning scenery in summertime, particularly in the the southwest, the the west country, and the economic and social policies of 13 years of, um, of Tory rule. So the inequality is uh, has grown apace. The homelessness is a problem. The mental illness is a problem. If you sit in town squares, you watch people shoveling, shuffling by on their, with their walkers and their sticks and so on. It looks Dickensian, the, the fact that they... They had 13 years of austerity. Um, that, that The consequences of that are the, the increasing poverty, and plus, of course, the most criminal and stupid decision the British ever made, which was to vote for Brexit to leave the European Union. That, the consequences of that are, are, are now becoming very obvious.
0: And what are they?
7: they cut themselves off from one of the largest markets, trading markets in the world. they made it incredibly difficult to travel across to the to the continent, even for school kids on holiday, because the the bureaucracy associated with the new Britain, Brexit, re erected barriers. The other obvious consequence is that the people who who came from Europe to do crucial work in um, agriculture in care of the elderly in the building industry, are no longer there. Poles, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, there was a deeply racist element in the decision to vote for Brexit. Uh, They didn't want foreign people arriving to take our people's jobs. Well, now, of course, there's a desperate shortage of Labour.
0: Is the Labour Party in Britain a viable alternative?
7: Well, it, it has to be. Otherwise, everybody's going to sink into the North Sea. Starmer, it has to be. It has to be an alternative for the next 20 years. It's, there has to be a story and a vision about a different kind of country, about how do we live together in a global warming world, in a world where violence seems to be the centerpiece of domestic and foreign policies where cruelty to asylum seekers and refugees is a priority topic for discussion every day in Britain. So the Labour Party under Starmer and and Co., they have to be different. I mean, the trouble is they they will be given a poison chalice, a country that's on its knees economically. I think the, the issue, a bit like here, it's about learning to craft and implement a different way of living together. And um, that's the uncritical reliance on capitalism has to end. We have to be able to talk about the fellowship associated with socialism. Uh, We have to be able to talk about privatization being uh, an alienating policy. We have to be able to talk about the violent consequences of capitalism. The politicians, even the Labour politicians are pretty frightened to do that because 75% of the media is still owned by the poisonous Mr Murdoch. If they were to dare to use the language which I've just used in the past 60 seconds, then um, we would have a kind of red under
0: the bed scare generated by the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail and the tabloids. But do the people talk about these issues? Not the politicians, but the people?
7: Well not not really, I mean they have because a bit like here they they take their cues from whatever the headline is in the newspaper, so that when that when that submersible sank with the five people on board when they were trying to look for the Titanic that was about a month ago for for days and days, that was the only topic of conversation that dominated the news media and dominated people's Alleged interests, but there's some hope. I mean, the 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 Tories were wiped out in in one constituency recently, where there was a twenty thousand previous Conservative majority, and the same happened with the the Liberal Democrats winning uh, a, a a by-election. So there's there's hope, but for for my money, it's it's not much different from here. You have to tell a different story about who we are, what we believe in, where we want to be in five years' time, ten years' time. And you know, a philosopher friend of mine used to say there was only one question to answer. What's it all about then? What's the purpose of, of life on Earth?
0: Well, I asked you a question before about the education system in Norway. What did you find in Britain?
7: In Britain? Well, unfortunately, it's... Uh, privilege and the purchase of privilege is still a dominant feature of the structure of of education and the support for the the power and influence of prestigious so-called public schools, which are in fact private, is still a feature of of, of British life, therefore a feature of social inequality, a reluctance to um, be enthusiastic about the funding and support for Public schools, in other words, for all the kids in all the um, poorer districts of Britain. In answer to your question about education, of course, the answer has to be uh, that the consequences are regional. You can go to parts of uh, the east end of London and um, Glasgow and Birmingham where the conditions are not very encouraging. You could go to private schools where the gladioli look happy and the lacrosse courts are well-groomed." So, in other words, inequality rules. There's a sort of philosophical conundrum, Jan, in the, in the sense that um, John Kenneth Galbraith, the wonderful economist, said that economists have never found the moral justification for selfishness. And it's that commitment to selfishness, which unfortunately still is still part of the DNA of British education.
0: And what about the National Health Service? Is that going to survive?
7: Well, yes, it will survive because it's when people talk about their identity in Britain, I would guess that the major thing that comes to mind of just about everybody is the NHS. And so although it's been terribly underfunded, the attempt to privatise parts of it has been disastrous. The problems of overworked young doctors and a shortage of nurses and a shortage of cleaners and a shortage of porters all mostly flow from Brexit. So there has to be a massive reinvestment in the NHS. That's not just in hospitals. It's it's a bit like here. It has to be in services that promote good health. So uh, addressing mental health, addressing obesity, it's services uh, that the NHS has to be able to deal with services over and beyond care in hospitals.
0: You mentioned obesity. There is the the diet of British people improved at all?
7: Well, no, because um, fast food, processed food, what do you call them, Sweet drinks, soft drinks with plastic with sugar are. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Are everywhere, and um, that's good health, encouragement of fellowship, encouragement of interdependence. You can hear the language I'm trying to use to depict what the future, or the, the the values that the future should rest on.
0: What about the issues of Scotland, Wales, maybe Ireland leaving Britain, the devolution movement? Well, that's
7: true. Look, there's a matter mass- I met. I met young doctors who were dissatisfied with the conditions in which they worked and they I met a group who got together and they're planning to arrive on the gold coast of Australia early next year because they they understand that the working conditions and the support is far better in Australia than in than in than in Britain I mean that's a problem I mean, in a way the world the the equality-inequality issue is worldwide. Australia must be desperately looking for doctors from countries like India to come and provide services in, in our regions. There's a kind of poaching going on of of um, medical personnel from developing countries where they are most needed.
0: What I meant with that question was, is there still talk about Scotland, and Wales and maybe Ireland Leaving the British Empire, what it used to be. Oh, the I see. I'm Empire. sorry, I missed that. Yeah.
7: Look, yeah, the breakup of the British Isles is always there. The it, it, it looked a few years ago as though Scotland would vote for independence. It doesn't look like that now. I think the major issue is not in the immediate future. It's about ceasing the domination of Westminster ceasing the the notion that most of the key decisions are made there. I mean, if you watch Prime Minister's Question Time in the House of Commons, you've got rows and rows of the Tory benches behaving really as, as though Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland are of, are of little importance. So the issue is is, is about devolution before any notion of interdep- independence. I mean, in, in my judgment, it, it all depends on how we cope with climate change. Because the great leveler for everybody on, on the face of the earth is climate change. I mean, if, if there's a, a great fire of London tomorrow, people might start to wake up, uh, or the politicians might start to wake up. So there will be bigger issues to address if human existence on this precious planet is to survive. I put it that explicitly.
0: We finally that the issue is Murdoch Sky News and you also like to talk about the untruth on the voice. Well,
7: this is a disgrace. You know, I was a social worker trained in the Maudsley Clinic and so on. I see these angry people like the the two Mrs. Price and Thorpe and Warren Mundine and Peter Dutton, heaven forbid. And they're full of anger about the voice. And but for me, the anger is about their past. The anger is about why they are not centre stage, why the world does not revolve around them. Unfortunately the casualty is becoming the voice and the poisonous influence of Sky News and the Rupert Murdoch back newspaper, who seem to accept that telling lies in the tradition of Donald Trump is a feature of modern life. And um, it's possible that The Voice will become a casualty of that process. And there's, there's a bit of me thinks that if if we'd been asked to vote on The Voice six months ago, it would have passed. But now it's been given an opportunity for, for all the People who are racist, frankly, racist, intolerant. I mean, how dare they say that this is going to divide the nation when, from the from the perspective of indigenous people, they've been the very, very poor, ignored relations for centuries. So how dare the the Duttons and the Wollamundins take that, uh, make those arguments? It's very disappointing. I mean, I think it's if the voice goes down, it would be disappointing for for Australia. I think it will affect our reputation internationally, and it will really postpone more uh, enthusiastic policies for the for Indigenous people for for generations.
0: Good to be home.
7: Yeah. Look, yes. Yes. It is. Look, um, <laughs> there are too many. I mean, I think I've had to address three major issues at public meetings in the, in the three days that I've been home. One was about the stupidity of buying nuclear submarines. The second is the cruelty associated with keeping Julian Assange still in prison. And the third issue is about the um, the pogroms against the Palestinians in the Middle East where our, our politicians for the most part, few exceptions, in Canberra just Try a blind eye to it and don't dare to say anything. So um, in order to address those issues, yes, I suppose I'm glad to be home.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, it.
7: Okay, okay John. Thanks for the interview.
0: And I've been speaking with Emeritus Professor Stuart Ress from Sydney University. He's also many other things. He's an author. He's a human rights activist. He was the founder of the Sydney Peace Foundation and a tireless worker for Julian Assange.
2: Australia's energy market is broken.
0: Right, but CoPower gives you better energy?
2: Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a CoPower member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and co-power today. And take the power back.
3: Victorian Energy Fact Sheets and Basic Plan Information Documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036.
2: A 3CR supporter. The fears are Palestinian scarves. And they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining
7: factory in Hebron that makes Fafiyas. And all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white Kofiyas to an array of modern designs. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the
2: rights of Palestinians. Go to kofiyas.org.au. That's kufiya au, A 3CR supporter.
4: All righty, we'll jump to a song now just to break up your Monday morning. It's 3CR and it's almost 8 a.m. here on 855 a.m. Uh, we've got lined up for you I've Lied by the legendary Archie Roach
1: Sitting here In a lonely Old guest house I'm sure That my life Is all through Scratch and free watching the grey mouse I'm making love to the memory of you For without you I'm weak and uncertain And I feel so naked and cold Like a window without any my innermost feelings unfold. The drink I just had, it wasn't as bad as the first. But drinking won't do when it's only for you. I thirst, I thirst. For your kiss, it quenches all burning. It's sweeter than the sweetest of wine. Now you're gone, I find myself yearning for the love that I left behind. Nobody the pain that i feel inside and if i said i'm strong and i'm never wrong i've lied i've lied pain that I feel inside, and if I said I'm strong, and I'm never wrong, I'd lie, I'd lie.
5: And that was a very beautiful sentimental song called I Lied by Archie Roach. You're listening to 3CR855AM. am are going to be listening to another very interesting conversation by Jan Bartlett from Tuesday Home Time. It's looking at the analysis of the decision to disallow the proposed nuclear waste dump on the Eyre Peninsula in South Australia. Jan spoke to Dr. Margie Bevis from the who is the vice President of the Medical Association for Prevention of War. So now let's take a listen.
0: The South Australia Government says that the Commonwealth needs to go back to the drawing board with plans for a nuclear waste dump and put all options on the table. This is in the context of a decision by the Federal court to set aside a decision to build the dump on South Australia's Eyre Peninsula near the town of Kimba. I'm speaking with Dr. Margie Beavis, representing the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Now, Margie, I'd like you to clean up two issues before we look at the successful campaign against the dump near Kimba. This proposed dump was, as we're told, for low-level nuclear waste, mostly associated with the production of nuclear medicine. What is nuclear medicine?
3: Two framings for this. The First, I'll explain nuclear medicine, then I'll talk about how dishonest the government has been about all this. Nuclear medicine is not radiotherapy. Nuclear medicine is not chemotherapy. Nuclear medicine is a small area of medicine where people use Radioactive material, the commonest use of it is actually for heart tests, for testing people who need a particular type of scan to judge heart function. It is, nuclear medicine is sometimes used to treat some types of cancer, but it's certainly one of the um, much lesser used strategies. And usually with nuclear medicine, what people do is they take some blood from the patient, they then label it, in other words, they stick some very short-acting radioactive material onto that blood and then they re-inject it. And then they look, they use it for what we call medical imaging. So then they look using a scanner to see where that particular blood has gone. What makes me, what has been very disturbing about this process is from the word go, the government has pushed nuclear medicine as the reason for this dump. And that is not the case in terms of Australian nuclear medicine Nuclear medicine, if you inject some radioactive material into a person, it's as I said, it's got a very short half-life. What that means, it's like a battery. It goes flat very quickly. So it loses its radioactivity really quickly. And so what they do in the hospitals, and this is all over Australia where they do do nuclear medicine, is they put the, the waste, so the syringes and the rubber gloves and things, into, and I kid you not, literally a lead-lined rubbish bin. So they put a lead lining on a rubbish bin. They put that stuff into that bin, they leave it for between a month and three months and then it's, the batteries run so flat, there's so little radioactivity left that it can go into the normal rubbish tip. It doesn't need any further special handling. So in terms of treating patients with nuclear medicine, the hospitals, the vast majority of this waste ends up being stored for a little while in the lined rubbish bin and then goes to a normal rubbish tip. The arguments around nuclear medicine producing waste are in the production of nuclear medicine and Australia ANSTO shamefully has ramped up a large export business so Australia needs about 1% of the world's nuclear isotopes ANSTO's ramped up a business that is likely to take over they want it, they're they aiming for 25 to 30% of the world's markets so they're trying to sell this stuff and in doing so we get left with the waste. They are replacing Canada, who used to have a reactor that did this export business, but the Canadians, for a number of reasons, did not replace that reactor for the export business, and one of them was a large amount of nuclear waste. It was leaving. So it's a complicated story as to where the the waste comes from, but there is a lot of liquid waste being accumulated in Lucas Heights from an export business That, in fact, probably loses money once you actually factor in the fact that you have to dispose of this intermediate-level waste. Like, they're selling all this stuff saying it's going to make money, but they're not factoring in the fact that they have to get rid of it somehow. So it's a complicated story, and even more complicated is the fact that it's a bit like renewables and coal. But if you go back 20 years, there is a a process that will make a lot of these radioisotopes, the vast majority of these isotopes, much, much cleaner. And that's gone through a lot of regulatory processes in Canada and is still coming together. But Australia should be really doing research into copying the Canadians and working out how to make these nuclear medicine much, much cleaner. So it's not happening yet, but there's much, much cleaner ways to do it down the track. But that's a
0: complicated story. I can imagine. Now, you've used two terms there. You've used low-level waste and you've used intermediate waste. Can you just explain a little bit more about the difference? Certainly. It's another piece of dishonesty on the
3: government. Firstly, they use nuclear medicine. I mean, the nuclear medicine argument makes me so... It's so dishonest the minister's gone on television in South Australia and said if we don't have this dump, nuclear medicine in Australia, will stop. That's actually completely false. With regard to intermediate-level waste and low-level waste, a lot of journalists and some of the government materials say that this facility in Kimber in South Australia is going to be for low level waste? Well no in fact there's two facilities proposed for Kimber. One is the low-level waste that as I said the battery radioactivity on that runs out after about 300 years so what they're doing with that is appropriately storing it then proposing to encase it in concrete make it waterproof and seal it adjust just below ground level. For the low-level waste, which is, as I said, runs out of radioactivity in 300 years, that's probably consistent with what is best practice around the world. What's really dishonest is the handling of the intermediate-level waste, which stays radioactive for over 10,000 years. Uh, now, our big numbers are hard, but if your listeners want to imagine, the pharaohs built their pyramids 5,000 years ago. So we're going back twice the length of time from now back to the pharaohs, for this waste to be kept out of the water supply, out of any contamination, out of the food chain, and to pretend that putting it in a temporary store, and by temporary they say up to a hundred years, which is just mind-boggling, on a facility that's located on a floodplain and does get it's a seismically active part, of one of the most seismically active parts of Australia, is really just kicking the can down the road. If like What we actually need is an inquiry into how to properly deal with this intermediate level waste. And the, the process has been just so badly done, but the worst, I mean, apart from dishonesty on a number of levels, the treatment of the Bangala people and the exclusion of them from the original survey of the community about having the, the community at Kimba, about having the waste dump, to completely exclude the traditional owners was incredibly disappointing, but also really hypocritical for a government that's pushing for the voice. I mean, this is completely the opposite, like you can have the voice, but when it actually is putting in radioactive waste dump on your traditional lands, you have no say. And that that it's very good news that a court has has thrown out that decision about a week ago.
0: Can I just take you back to that dishonesty, the dishonesty about the medical waste. Why haven't mm-hmm. the medical fraternity and the pharmaceutical industry spoken up about this dishonesty? It's a very good question. At the Medical association French of War, we've been saying saying what we
3: can. I think, ANSTO has been very savvy. They took some of the senior people in the radiology and nuclear medicine field on a tour of Lucas Heights and showed them all the whiz-bang technology there. And they, you know, what a wonderful facility this was. So they've done a lot of marketing to senior people in the College of Radiology. I'm not using the right terminology, but basically, the 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 people who use nuclear medicine, and so they are glad to have the nuclear medicine. They're not going to get political about how it's made or whether there's an export industry or where the waste goes. Ansto has been quite skillful in manipulating the most qualified group of specialists to just be supportive of the production of nuclear medicine. And the rest of the nuclear of the medical profession, I've certainly, when they were praising in the Southern Flinders Ranges, the GP there was very outspoken. But the rest of the medical profession would sort of defer to the specialists that are involved, pretty much. But there are certainly other doctors in MAPW, Medical Association Prevention of War, who've spoken up, and we do what we can. But it is it is, in some ways, sort of like falling between the cracks in that. Yeah, I'm not trying to excuse this, but yeah, I think once ANSTO had got the College of Radiologists, of medical, nuclear medicine specialists, I I can't give you the precise name of the college, and also they've sweet-talked the AMA, and the AMA I have met with in South Australia, and they were certainly dismayed about what was happening with the nuclear waste dump, but they haven't come out with any public statement.
0: I'm sure you realise, Margie, that when I said the medical professional, I wasn't including M-A-P-W, because you're doing fine work. <laughs> we do our best. <laughs> now, as you said, they're trying for Kimber, but they've been trying for others as well. The Flinders Rangers, what happened when they tried to push one in that area or push around that area?
3: Well, this is a really, I mean, it's part of the whole dishonesty. With the Southern Flinders Rangers, they used a 50-kilometre radius for the survey. So they asked everybody within a 50 kilometer radius of the dump, whether they wanted it or not, and asked the community. And the community resoundingly said, no, we do not want this dump. When it came to doing the same thing for Kimber, they were much more cunning. Instead of doing a 50 kilometer radius, which would have included a lot of the farmers who are opposed to this waste facility, Instead of doing a fifty kilometre radius, no, they just used the town boundaries. Now the town boundaries really largely include the businesses that will benefit from the increased business that comes from building a waste facility. And so they were much more likely to get a positive outcome, which they did. It was only it was not a resounding result, but I think it was something like 61% but or 62%. What was shameful in that process is that there were farmers that were closer to the dump than the township and whose product would be affected reputationally by having a waste dump so close to them, and they were not able to vote because of the way the vote was set up. So the the manipulation of the community has continued. I mean, this is not a politically naive process. There's been lots of... A lot of money spent in trying to persuade this community to accept a waste facility and a lot of it's been quite um, misleading or outright dishonest.
0: Where were the Indigenous peoples in this? The traditional
3: owners do not live at Kimba, but they were completely excluded from the survey. And so they, not surprisingly, took the government to court and said, you cannot put this. We are... they, they were very sensible in that they got an independently commissioned survey of the Bangala people. So they got... They sent out a survey that was independently run and that was a unanimous vote of no, they did not want this nuclear waste on their traditional lands. So then they have, and it's not been an easy process for them, taken the government to court and I think the government spent about $13 million on the court process. The Bangala had to come up with about half a million dollars, but still that's a huge amount of money for a, a, a small group and... It was wonderful, it was sort of a David versus Goliath court case, and they, this court case came down saying that there'd been, I think I said apprehended decision-making and bias in the decision-making by the minister, and so that the site was quashed, was the nice word, nice satisfying word, to have the site selection quashed. We now have to wait and see whether the government chooses to appeal this decision, and that may yet happen, which is, it's so incredibly hypocritical given this government supports a voice for Aboriginal people, and it's also possible they may choose another site around Kimber. Anyway, who knows what the future holds? I mean, it was a major, was a big win and tremendous effort on the part of the Bangala people and all the anti-nuclear activists who have supported them. But, but really, hats off to everybody. But we aren't finished yet.
0: And of course, a lot of local people as well.
3: Yes, local the local farmers in you know. No nuclear waste on farmland in Kimber. There is. If your listeners want to um, help with this process, there is a Change.org petition. Um, I'm just getting the title up on my screen just a moment, and people can go to the Change.org website, which is called "No Nuclear Waste Dump on Our Country, Bangala." So I'll say that again. If you do Change.org and go to "No Nuclear Waste Dump," On our country, Bangala, and that shows now that has got over 14,000 signatures. But the more signatures we can get, the more the government will be less likely to appeal. The other thing people can do is just briefly email Anthony Albanese, Penny Wong, Ed Husick, Madeleine King, just send them a quick email to say, please do not appeal the Bargala decision. Please have an independent inquiry into how to deal with Australia's nuclear waste. Because they keep going. But this is, there's been multiple processes over the last 30 or 40 years. And they keep doing it so badly that it doesn't go ahead. They need to stop. Look at what's happening. Look at how much waste is being made. Look at it's really time to stop and do it properly.
0: You said government land, where does land rights fit into this?
3: Well, that's a very good question. The nuclear submarines, which are a whole other nuclear waste nightmare, we're going to get these second-hand submarines from America, and then we're going to keep the nuclear waste that is with these submarines, and that's high-level waste that's even longer-lived than the intermediate-level waste. They're talking about putting that on defence land, but defence land and land that has traditional owners on it that often overlap. So where does the government land, quote unquote, exist? And if they're going to do this, they need to really talk long and sincerely and discuss with the affected communities so that they can see that there's trade-offs for putting this material on their land. There are benefits that are worth that. And so far, they haven't succeeded.
0: You've sat down with the local people near the dump site or at Kimber, when was that and what was achieved with those meetings or that meeting? Um, That was all pre-COVID, which feels like a generation ago, well pre-COVID. Basically, those
3: meetings were about, both in the Flinders Ranges and at Kimber, about putting the nuclear medicine side of the story so that people understood that they were being gaslighted, really, about nuclear medicine and that the waste facility wasn't going to, wasn't urgent, it isn't going to stop nuclear medicine production and that nuclear medicine in people was not the reason why we needed this waste facility. That If, if the ANSTO has behaved, not has not acted in good faith at almost any point in this process and that's really for government, for it's, it's not a government organisation, but for, a government, for an organisation that is very heavily subsidised by the government, that's a disgrace.
0: What were the meetings like with the local people? Oh, very friendly.
3: Although what was really sad was
0: that because in the country you have
3: to get along with people, a lot of people just weren't talking about it. They wouldn't discuss it because they didn't want to distress their neighbours. So they, they, wanted, they wanted to be able to get along. So it, it sort of put up, it made divisions in the community that had been previously been very united, which is very sad. I think a lot of the community members were incredibly sad at how much division had come out of this and what damage it had done to what had previously been a really close-knit community.
0: And you can imagine the stress on the families in the area, the Aboriginal families, of going to court, fighting this for how many years?
3: Oh, I'm guessing I'd say two, but more. I mean, we've been fighting the whole thing for about, I don't know, it feels like a decade, but it's probably about seven years. I think what was saddest out of some of those meetings with the community was that People said you know their kids would be more likely to move away from the township if they had a nuclear waste dump you know who would want to bring your kids up close to a nuclear waste dump it's it it was just it was very sad to see the division that had come into the community with with this government decision to to locate it there.
0: And I'd imagine this would happen with the, the local farmers as well with their green produce.
3: the local farmers were certainly very concerned about what the reputational impacts would be for what their grain, which was previously sort of had a good clean and green reputation, they were certainly very concerned about what this would do to their reputation
0: and therefore their grain prices. Well let's look at the hypothetical, if this did go ahead or had gone ahead where was the material coming from and how was it going to get to that area near Kimber?
3: Okay, one of the other dishonest things that the government said was that this was urgent because there was nuclear waste at over 100 sites around the country. Most of this waste, the vast majority of this waste is coming from ANSTO at Luke Lucas Heights Reactor and that's the intermediate level waste and then there's a whole lot of waste at Woomera in 44-gallon drums, that's low-level waste. That is the vast majority of it. There is a very, very tiny volume that has been stored in hospitals and in science laboratories around the country. And it's a bit like the waste from the nuclear medicine. This stuff has been, for instance, this radium in hospitals that's been safely stored in hospitals since the 1960s and 70s. And there is no urgency to move this stuff. The real, the, the real urgency is for the government to start planning for a proper world's best practice, deep geological facility, if that's what comes out of the inquiry. It's probably the most likely thing. And that can take 30 or 40 years to plan and build. And Finland has taken 30 or 40 years to plan their nuclear waste facility. But it's still not online yet. I mean, nobody around the world has a successful nuclear waste facility for high-level waste. And that's what we are going to get with the submarines. And the government is sort of just hoping to dump the intermediate-level waste onto a community for 100 years while they think about it. It's not, it's not good enough. They shouldn't be moving this stuff twice. They should. With radioactive waste, the accidents can happen on site, but they also can happen when the waste is being transferred. And with any exposures, the the principle is to the least risk possible. And the government was not looking at that, not paying attention to the sort of proper practice in handling this very highly toxic radioactive waste.
0: And as you've pointed out a couple of times about the dishonesty of both this government and previous governments, the nuclear industry has a record of dishonesty as well.
3: Oh my goodness, the the pro-nuclear power industry in Australia is so, it's got a real lease of life now that we're getting nuclear-powered submarines. But if they really want to look at a real-world example of how stupid nuclear power is, it's, it's stupid on so many levels. But if you're just looking at the money side of things, it's way more expensive than renewables with storage. And in the UK, nuclear power since 2010 has gone from... I mean, nuclear power is falling. It's now 12.5% of the UK power. They're trying to get money to build a new nuclear reactor and nobody nobody with any sense is putting up money. They've got what's called a capital strike where they can't raise the money to do nuclear power because it just makes no sense. It's, it's, it's too expensive. Nobody wants it. And interestingly, in, in the UK, since 2010 the amount of renewables, so in the last 13 years, the amount of renewables has gone from 6% to 48%. And renewables are much cheaper. They're also much cleaner. They're much safer. They don't lead to nuclear waste issues. For Australia, it's it's ridiculous. They're too slow. It would take 20 years to get a nuclear reactor up and running. And these small modular reactors that everybody's talking about are even more expensive to run than a large reactor. I mean, it's it's a nonsense to say these small modular reactors are what Australia needs, because unless you have billions and billions and billions of dollars subsidies from uh, taxpayer dollars, there is no way a nuclear reactor would ever be built. No, no sensible investor would put money into them.
0: Well, just finally, Margie, this decision by the federal court, I can imagine... The the nuclear industry is seeing this as a setback, but they're determined to press ahead and that means there's more work for people like you and me.
3: Absolutely. Um, I think the nuclear industry is delighted by the AUKUS subs decision and is going to use that to lever as much as they can. I think as far as nuclear reactors go... I think one of the really wonderful things is Australians are sensible enough to know that they don't want a nuclear reactor anywhere near their house. There's good evidence that there's increases in childhood leukaemia within five kilometres of a nuclear reactor. And when I think it was John Howard started talking about nuclear reactors, the opposition leader at times sort of laughed and said, OK, tell me which electorates it's going to go in, because as soon as you say to an electorate, you're getting a nuclear reactor, I think it's." giddies to gooseberries the government representative would, would lose his seat so I think nuclear power I'm hopeful because it's so expensive because it's so unpopular because it's so slow I'm hopeful that we will not get nuclear power but what I do think we really need to be careful about is nuclear subs being the thin end of the wedge for an international waste dump because nobody globally has solved this problem and if they think they can get their waste and dump it in Australia that's a nice solution so I think Whilst I'm mildly optimistic that the nuclear power industry won't get off the ground, I am very cautious about the fact that the nuclear waste issue is going to just keep going and going and we could well end up handling, ending up with an awful lot of it.
0: Hopefully not. Okay, thank you very much, Margie. Um, Yeah, if
3: people can email, email your email, Albo, Wong,
0: Husic and King, just a quick email saying
3: don't appeal the nuclear waste dumps decision and do... Time for an independent inquiry. That'd be fabulous. And sign the petition. No nuclear waste dump
0: on our country, Bangala. Thanks a lot, Jan. And Dr. Margie Beavis is Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War.
4: The fight isn't just the Palestinians fight, it's all our fight because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom.
0: Everybody should be standing here today saying free Palestine.
7: Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty.
3: We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians.
4: 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical.
5: And you're listening to 3CR 855 5 AM. That is pretty much the end of our show. We've got very, we've got very interesting stuff from Jan Bartlett from Tuesday Home Time. If you want to listen to, like for uh, so for the first one, there was a part one only of the interview with Jafar M Ramini. So if you want to hear part two, um, go to Tuesday home time for, uh, from 4pm to 6pm. So yeah, it's been a very interesting one of shows. shows. Uh, James, what are you going to do for the rest of the week? The
4: rest of the week, I have no idea whatsoever. <laughs> I will say tonight I'll be watching the Matildas play awesome. Denmark. Wow, big game, knockout stage in the mm-hmm. World Cup. World Cup fever. Mm-hmm. Uh, my other show is the Sporting Record, of course, on Thursdays at four pm. Little plug. So I'll be I'll be right into that. That's amazing. Dissect the game on Thursday.
5: Amazing. How about
4: you? Well, I've got a
5: show on Wednesday. Uh, again, Wednesday Brecky. That's my main team over there because. Uh, I'm obviously not going to leave them anytime soon. So yeah, don't worry there. But yeah, I'm, I'm also going to be here on Monday brekkie now. I'm just going to do both whenever, and do whatever I can. We've got a lot of interesting stuff coming on on Wednesday. So yeah, listeners can stay tuned. But of course, we, breakfast is on Monday to Friday. So yeah, stay tuned every day from 7 to 8.30. And other than that, I'll just be busy with work as usual. Um, Work and study. Work and study. Um, I've got my last week of my internship, actually. Yeah, I do social media. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, It's at another radio station as well. I've been learning a lot. That's actually my first internship. So, yeah, it's been very exciting. I really love media. It's something Mm. I just really enjoy doing. So I'm still going to continue learning whatever I can about radio and understanding the media, especially Mm. because... I'm um, learning about a media from another country. So Mm. culture-wise and the way things work just aren't the same. Mm. And of course, uh, media diversity and the way how free speech and everything works. just so different. But I love it. I'm learning a lot. And
4: that's what I'm here for. And you're good at it too. Thank you. You're good at it. Let me (laughs) tell you. Thank you, James. Um, Just to take us out, we're going to play a song by Kutcher Edwards, uh, Trying to Outrun the Sun. Kucha, one of the voices the great voices of this country so i like to play kutcher as much as i can Easy. we won't get the whole song because we've got women on the line coming up but it's a good song even in the first two minutes have a great week everybody
6: Stand,
1: a knock at my door,
2: who's standing there. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.